Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, July 25th, 2016. Am I going to have time to get to all of this? Uh-oh. I overdid it. That's right. Too much stuff for Monday. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage. I mean, we are like up to our neck, maybe beyond our neck, up to like our nose, you know, swimming in uh, teachers who are just making stuff up. And it's absolutely bizarre. And unfortunately, the people who are feeding us this doctrine that really isn't from Scripture, isn't from God, uh, they they comprise the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, Prophetess, the self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we need to be listening to, you know, whose books we need to be buying and whose, you know, small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. And uh, we actually compare what God's Word says by putting things back into context using sound exegesis, proper hermeneutics, Christ-centered approach to Scripture. That's right. Scriptures are about Jesus. They're not about you. It's about what he's done for you. And uh, when we do this, properly looking at the proper distinction between law and gospel, what we find is that so much of what's being passed off today is absolute just nonsense. Talking about that, let's talk about what we're going to do for today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to begin with a Hillsong update. And I've come to, <laughs> found a, a a video online where, get this, you remember the whole naked cowboy flap? Yeah, the, the naked cowboy flap. Well, apparently at the recently concluded Hillsong Conference out in Sydney, Australia, they had one of those backstage video things going on. And somebody had the audacity to ask Carl Lentz about the naked cowboy. And I, I wish I was making this up. I mean, we're still waiting for somebody to actually take the blame, you know, because, um, well, if you remember properly, uh, Brian Houston said Bobby was totally unaware of it. Carl Lentz had nothing to do with it whatsoever. 
uh, you know, the, the, uh, Simula, the, uh, the youth pastor there is the guy who played the naked cowboy. But we have no idea who was actually responsible for making the decision. And yeah, wait till you find out who Carl Lentz blames. Yeah. It, well, in fact, I'll tell you now, no joke. Carl Lentz, kind of tongue in cheek, but I mean, at this point, they're blaming Donald Trump for the appearance of the naked cowboy at the Hillsong Color Conference, the Women's Color Conference out in New York. And so we'll let Carl Lentz explain how Donald Trump is to blame for that. Then we have a, a Terry Savelle Foy update, um, and uh, it's all about becoming your own best cheerleader. You, you need to be your own best cheerleader. We'll take a look at some of the things she's saying. And then we have a Perry Stone update. And this is a fascinating one because Perry Stone is uh, taking great lengths to make himself appear to be a prophet of God and that he's giving some kind of a warning, a prophetic warning, tsunami alert. And so, you know, we covered this a while back, actually not that far back, but uh, where we said he was fear-mongering and basically issuing a tsunami warning. And uh, he, he, well... has decided to double down on that, but in the midst of it, he twists God's word, which begs the question, why would God give Perry Stone a prophecy about an impending tsunami on the West Coast when he's twisting God's word? Don't you think if God were speaking to him, he would be saying something to the effect of, Perry Stone, you're twisting my word, you need to repent, something like that. But uh, we'll cover that. And, uh, And then we have a Joel Osteen update. Joel Osteen recently did an uh, interview with Oprah. In fact, it was Joel and Victoria. They did an interview with Oprah. And we'll play some of the questions and answers from that interview because it's oh so fascinating. And then in hour number two, we're going to head to Harris Creek Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. Uh, You know, it's movie preaching season right now. And we're going to hear Brady Herbert. Brady Herbert Preach on um, <clears throat> the movie Star Wars The Force Awakens. Yeah, apparently um, Christianity was able to make it for nearly 2,000 years without the assistance of Hollywood. And now we must preach on movies in order to stay relevant because everybody knows, you know, preaching God's word. Yeah, it's just not where it's at anymore. You know, who needs that? We, we've got to supplement it, yeah, with movies and stuff like that to keep people's attention. I mean, after all, I mean, we're talking about millennials and, you know, with ADHD and things like that. So that will be what comprises today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And since we're going to begin with a Hillsong update, that requires us to do this. Praise the Lord for all the cash I've got Praise Him for my Rolls Royce and my yacht Serving God ain't hard with a credit card Jesus died so I could make a lot Praise the Lord, He's made us millionaires Wave your donations in the air We've replaced our hymns with ATMs And soon we'll charge a fee on every prayer Jesus Christ was a poor man, don't you know? He should have used our accountants for his cash flow Stop the Sermon on the Mount, he should have had a bank account Two thousand years with interest He'd be rolling in the dough Praise the Lord, this song's out on CD 
Jesus forty ninety five plus GST. Hallelujah, plenty of Buddha, solitaire baubles on my Christmas tree. I've got all of heaven's riches, thanks to all you stupid people. Praise the Lord for modern Christianity. Never said religion should be free. That's right. Praise the Lord and pass your ATM card over to Hillsong and uh, Brian Houston. So uh, we're heading backstage at the um, Hillsong conference that recently concluded. They had a little live stream thing going on backstage there. And Carl Lentz was asked a question straight up about the naked cowboy. And it, it turns out we now know who is responsible for the decision? And it's not Carl Lentz or Bobby Houston or, you know, anybody like that. No, 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 no. It's somebody far more insidious. Uh, here's Carl Lentz to explain. Yeah, she goes and does that to you. And, and she throws up something about the naked cowboy. What do you want to know about the naked cowboy? <laughs> what does that even mean? It was at the color conference. Yeah, he, you know what it means, Carly. We, we, we had a... We did. We had a, a vague look-alike. Vague. It was a bad idea. Was nowhere near naked. Come on. All right. So he admits it was a bad idea. Vague look-alike. But see, the thing is, well, um, let me read from the uh, the Brian Houston blog from June first, twenty sixteen. Have you heard the one about the cowboy? Brian Houston writes. It says, "So how did someone?" come on stage resembling a cowboy during a fun moment involving lots of other people at the color conference in NYC? It is a good question. I've been trying to work that out myself. Yeah, this is the, um, this is the Aaron and the Golden Calf explanation. You familiar with the uh, the story of the children of Israel while Moses was up on Mount Sinai meeting with the Lord? He was gone for quite a while. And, well, he came back, and the children of Israel were, you know, worshiping a golden calf. And, you know, Aaron, you know, while well, Moses has some really sharp words with Aaron, says, how did you let these people, you know, do this? How did, how, you know, why did you let them break out like this? And he basically, Aaron tells this story about how, you know, he collected all the gold, threw it into the fire, and poof, out came this golden calf. Yeah, and so this is Brian Houston's golden calf explanation. You know, he's trying to figure out, well, how did the naked cowboy, you know, who made this decision? How did it, how did it come about? And he says, I've been trying to work that out myself. He says, I don't, I don't, I do know that Bobby, my wife, he says, uh, who was the convener of the conference was clearly unaware that this was going to happen and was taken back by it. She was at the dress rehearsal. There was no sign of a cowboy there. Carl and Laura Lentz were also not part of the decision. I can only guess at this point that someone thought that it would be funny and sent him out there th without thinking about the ramifications. So, you know, the official word from Brian Houston is, we don't know who's responsible for this. So, Carl says it was a bad decision, but who is the one who made the bad decision? Naked, can we say? He was not, but, you Diego. know, we, we like to make issues out of stuff. Diego, so, Diego. Uh, it was our youth Diego. pastor. Um, yeah, so they know it was Diego Simla, yeah? His fault. We blame Donald Trump. 
Oh, there you go. That's the official word from Carl Lentz of Hillsong, New York City. Donald Trump is the one responsible for making the decision for the color conference to have the naked cowboy come out on stage. But clearly, Carl's in the know, you know? It's weird. It's strange. I don't know why, but when in doubt, blame Donald. Blame Donald. Is that what you do? Yeah, he made us do it. Yeah, Donald. Absolutely. We had some of that gear go down there earlier on, and we blamed Donald. Blame oh, yeah. Donald. So that can be hashtag blame Donald. <laughs> if you fail at anything, blame, blame Donald. <laughs> Sound didn't go right. Blame Donald. Yeah. Brian, I couldn't come to work today. Why? Donald Trump? Donald. <laughs> That's a good one. Should we talk about the American election? No, maybe we should. No. We're, we're making America great again. One mistake at a time. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, making America great again. One mistake at a time. It's Donald Trump's fault, but it's weird because, you know, Carl's seems to be in the... Yeah, some of the things he said sounded, well, different than Brian Houston's explanation, if you know what I mean. Moving along. Yeah, time for a Terry Savelle Foy update. Hi, you want to go for a ride? Sure, Ken. Jump in. I'm a Bobby girl in the Bobby world. Life in plastic. It's fantastic. You can brush my hair. i me everywhere. Imagination. Life is your creation. Come on, Barbie. Let's go party. That's right. I'm a Barbie girl. So the segment we're going to be listening to from the uh, Terry Savelle Foy video blog, which you can find, by the way, on YouTube, uh, we're going to be listening to her explain to us how she found herself a cheerleader. And apparently that cheerleader is herself. And uh, she's filmed this for us while doing ministry work. Uh, yeah, wait to hear it in uh, in Paris, France. Here's Terry Savelle Foy to explain. Bonjour tout le monde. Here I am in the beautiful city of Paris, France, with the Eiffel Tower right behind me. And of course, I'm right here by the Louvre Museum, the most beautiful city in the world. You know, this is the mission field of Terry Savelle Foy Ministries, and I cannot tell you that enough how much God is doing to impact this nation. You know, over the weekend, I was preaching in Normandy. And just the people... You were preaching? God's word forbids that. Okay. Coming up to me afterwards, some of them crying. The pastor was crying. Precious people telling me, you're breaking mindsets here. We've never been told that God wants us to dream. That he wants... Uh, right. So they've never been told God wants them to dream. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that's quite simple. The Bible doesn't actually say that. If it did then people would have been hearing for millennia that God wants them to dream. That would be part of historic, orthodox, biblical Christianity. But since it's not actually taught in the Scripture, well, there's a reason why there's been like this 2,000-year-long void of darkness and silence on the whole God-wants-you-to-dream doctrine. Mm-hmm. Think bigger. In fact, I preached on Sunday, and when I finished, the pastor said, Give us 10 more minutes. Please, we just want to keep learning. So they're hungry for the Word of God. Yeah, if they were hungry for the Word of God, they wouldn't be listening to you. Because, you know, the message you're bringing them is not from the Word of God. 
to say thank you to our partners for making all of this possible. We're changing lives in France. Well, today the podcast is all about how I think I found myself a cheerleader. <laughs> no, I'm not Omi. I get that all the time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I want to talk to you about how to become your own best cheerleader. I'm not going to sing to you today, but I am going to give you a pep talk. Uh-huh. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Because we know that scripture is just chock full of that important doctrine, the, uh, the you know, become your own best cheerleader doctrine. It's right next to the same book of the Bible that teaches the importance that God wants you to dream. Uh-huh. I want you to learn how to become your cheerleader, how to encourage yourself to achieve what God has put in your heart to do. How to achieve what God has put in your heart to do. Boy, they're spending a lot of time um, basically reinforcing a doctrine that is nowhere taught in Scripture. You know, helping people achieve these dreams that God actually hasn't laid on their heart. You may never in your life have John Maxwell show up at your front door. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't want to because if he shows up at my front door and comes into my house, we're going to be sitting down and having a conversation with an open Bible. Yeah, and the words repent are going to be part of what I say to him. Never have Tony Robbins sitting in your living room motivating you. <laughs> right. Tony Robbins is not my motivator, and uh, he's a Buddhist, isn't he? Uh, why are we referencing him in a so-called Christian video blog? You may never have Joyce Meyer doing the robot <laughs> in your kitchen. But- right. Yeah, see, if Joyce Meyer were in my kitchen... Her doing the robot would be really inappropriate. The reason being is is that there wouldn't be a lot of levity going on. It would it would not be one of those conversations where we're all yucking it up together and and you know telling stories and jokes and cracking each other up and saying, "Hey, look, I'm doing the robot." <laughs> yeah, you know, because if Joyce Meyer were foolish enough to actually enter my kitchen. Again, tough conversation would be taking place. The word repent would be coming out of my mouth, directed right at her, and I would be opening up the scriptures and showing that she is not only a false teacher, she has no authority to be a pastor, that she needs to, you know, the the doctrines she's teaching are scratching, itching ears, that she's twisting God's word, and I would tell her she needs to repent of this foolishness because she's literally risking the fires of hell and has, well, misled so many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, and shipwrecked the faith of countless numbers of those people, that uh, she stands uh, to really not have things go well for her on the Day of Judgment. You know, something like that. So I don't think she'd be in the mood for doing the robot after that conversation or even during it. You have to become your own best motivator to encourage yourself. In fact, I heard a story years ago about this couple back in the 1920s named Charles and Esther. Well, Charles and Right, the 1920s, long after the biblical canon was closed, so this is not a biblical story, but apparently she heard the story about these two people, and this will serve to, well, verify the veracity of what it is that she's teaching.
had dreams of being millionaires. He was always telling Esther, one day we're going to be millionaires. Well, all of a sudden, tragedy struck, the Great Depression hit, it was 1929, and it devastated their lives. Both Charles and Esther lost their jobs, they mortgaged their home, they had to sell their car, and they said they used up their entire life savings. Well, this devastated Charles. In fact, he was so depressed, Esther said he sat around the house all day, discouraged, depressed, feeling hopeless, so much that he even told Esther, he said, you know, you might as well leave me, go marry someone else, because it's obvious I'm never going to be a millionaire. Go find someone else who can make your dream come true. Uh, yeah, apparently you're not worthy to, um, you know, to be married unless you're a millionaire. Hmm. Boy, there's all kinds of, like, bad worldview going on in the story, don't you think? Well, fortunately, while Charles was depressed and discouraged, Esther stayed full of faith, full of hope, and she told Charles, she said, that's not true. She said, we are going to achieve this dream, but we've got to do something every day to keep our dream alive. Yeah, we got to do something every day to keep our dream alive. That's what God would have us do, you know. She said, keep it alive. It's already dead. She said, no, it's not, but we have to do something to keep it alive. So he, she said, let's just start talking about what we're going to do when we're millionaires. So they said they'd sit at the dinner table and just discuss what is life going to be like when we're millionaires. Now think about that. They were using the words of their mouth to call things that be not as though they already are. One day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, apparently they were little deities. Who knew? Yeah, because God, God is the one who calls the things that are not as though they were. And notice she just said that about these two people from the story. And it's all about being millionaires because, I mean, everybody knows Jesus died so that you can have your best life now, you know. Be millionaires. Well, then they took it another notch and they said, hey, let's start making some play money. We don't have any real money. We might as well make some play money. So they did. They made all this play money. And then all of a sudden they had an idea to build little houses, make these little houses, little hotels, and land. They turned it into a full-fledged game with dice, with little properties, little hotels. And of course, you guessed that that was the beginning of Monopoly, right? Well, friends of Charles and Esther said, this is so much fun. I think you need to approach Parker Brothers and see if they'll produce this game and, you know, you can become millionaires. So they approached Parker Brothers, showed them the game, and Parker Brothers played the game, but this is what they said. We find this game dull, we find the action slow, and the rules are hopelessly complex. Well, still, that didn't discourage Charles and Esther. They said, we are not going to give up on this dream. So they went to Wanamaker's Toy Company. They approached them with the game. They said, you know, if you'll stock this game, we'll take out a loan and create 5,000 of them. Well, the game took off. All of a sudden, Parker Brothers is interested. They said, let me replay the game. They replayed it, and they said, this time, we find the game imaginative, <laughs> surprisingly fast-paced, and easy to master. <laughs> well, all of a sudden, in 1935, the game was copyrighted, and they sold it to Parker Brothers for $1 million. Well, my point is, they had to do something to keep their dream alive. Yeah, right. And, and see, they're such an inspiration for us, you know. Let me read to you from the Epistle of James, chapter 4. Starting at verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and then he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Let your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Interesting. James talks about how we don't have because we ask according to our sinful, worldly passions. And here, Terry Savelle Foy, without any biblical warrant, uh, through a twisting of God's word and a complete obsession with the things of the world, wealth, fortune, fame, having your dream destiny come true, is telling us that, oh, the people who invented Monopoly, they are an example for us to follow. They were dreaming about becoming millionaires and they were able to make that happen. Uh-huh. Right. It's weird. Who are you going to believe? Scripture and the Apostle James or Terry Savelle Foy? A woman who is clearly obsessed with, well, success and achieving what the world has to offer, wealth and fortune and fame and things like that. You know, we've got to keep that dream alive, you know. You will too. You know, the same with me. Here I am in Paris, France, and, and you hear testimonies about how God's opening doors for us in this nation. We're preaching at some of the biggest church in France. Um, um, that's because you're scratching itching ears. Churches, you know. And God's doing so much in this nation, but... Uh, God has nothing to do with what you're teaching because what you're teaching is not actually taught in God's Word. It didn't start out that way. I had to become my own best cheerleader. I had to go get a map of the the nation of France. I have Eiffel Towers all over my house, all over my office. Oh, I... right, yeah, because, you know, that she's the one who made this all happen because she's the one who had the vision. She spoke this all into existence. The purpose of the photograph of the Eiffel Tower and all the little Eiffel Tower statues in her home was that was her vision board by which she spoke and reinforced and spoke this into existence. All glory and praise and honor goes to Terry Savelle's Foy for acting as a divine being and causing these things to come into existence through her words and thoughts and imagination. She had to be her own best cheerleader, you know. To put visual reminders that one day we're going to make a difference in this nation. I had to talk to myself. I had to become my own motivator. You know, you can watch podcasts like this and be motivated, but I have to watch podcasts too. I have to listen to audio teaching to keep myself encouraged. You know, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing. So every time you hear the word, it builds your faith. Um, yeah, that's Romans ten seventeen, and it's not talking about what you're talking about there. So notice, first reference of the Word of God, and it's a Bible twist. Romans 10, uh, 17 has a context. Yeah, that's right. The three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, and context. So Romans chapter 10, verse 11, the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The context here is saving faith. The faith that clings to the promise of the forgiveness of sin. So Paul then asks, So how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This is talking about saving faith that comes through the preaching of the gospel. Yeah, which she seems to be completely oblivious to, and the reason for that is quite simple. She's blind to what Scripture says because she thinks that godliness is a form of attaining wealth and prestige and affluence and influence and things like that, Mm -hmm. as if somehow godliness is a way to, well... Having a very wealthy, wealthy uh, 401k and well-padded bank account and stuff like that. That's not what scripture is about at all. I think you get the point. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a Perry Stone update as well as a Joel Osteen update. Don't want to miss him. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Yeah, just up ahead is a path that will lead us to the main highway. Yeah, I, I hear the traffic from here. That was a nice little hike. I do enjoy this trail. It's just a simple three-hour hike. Hey, what's that up ahead? I have no idea. Let's check it out. It looks like a journal of some sort. It's really beat up. Should we read it? Well, we've got nothing better to do. Sounds good to me. Day one. Today is my first day of the Emmaus Walk. My church counselor, Gary Sunshine, told me that if I went out into the wilderness and believed and trusted in Jesus, that Jesus would 
come and walk with me and communicate to me. So I packed enough provisions to last me for a few days. Day two. Still no sign of Jesus. I've dedicated myself to meditating to bring myself closer to his presence. I hope it happens soon. Day three. I think I figured out what I've been doing wrong. I haven't been trusting Jesus enough with my walk. Now I've decided to go to the deeper parts of this jungle because I don't think that Jesus would associate himself with just the fringes of the forest. I think he needs to see that I'm audacious, so I'm going to forget the comforts I brought entirely. Looks like some of the pages have been ripped out. It doesn't pick up again until... Day 9. Today, my stock of toilet paper ran out, and still no signs from Jesus. I should have enough food to get me back to civilization, but I think that Mr. Sunshine will be disappointed that my journey wasn't more fruitful. I think it's because I wasn't listening hard enough to Jesus. Day nine and a half. I think I'm lost. I think I took a wrong turn. Everything is starting to look really foreign and unfamiliar. Day 14. Today, my tent was attacked by a bear and was ripped to shreds. I just barely escaped, but I'm going to have to start foraging for my own food. I can only hope that I find my way back. Day 34. Today, I came across an indigenous tribe that was building a large metal sphere that looked far superior to any military technology. I was chased by them for about 15 miles. I'm really hungry. Day 42. I don't think I'm ever going to get out, and I just realized that I don't think I left Mr. Snuggles enough food to make it for this long. So far, still no sign of Jesus or enlightenment. I'm beginning to think that Mr. Sunshine was lying about the Emmaus Walk. Day 88. I think I'm done. I've gone through months of hunting for food with... Nothing more than a spork from Chuck E. Cheese's. I'm not even hungry anymore. I don't think that's good. Day 102. If you're reading this, then I hope that you're not as miserably lost as I am. There's no way out. The Emmaus Walk walk is is a trap. If your church even so much as suggests the idea, then run for your life, because once you're on that path, there's no going back. I can promise you that Jesus is not in these woods. I can't blame him. I don't want to be here either. I can't do this anymore. I give up. She must have died while writing it. She wouldn't have written... She would have just said it and then died. Well, on any account, we'll never do an Emmaus walk. Yeah, I hear you there. Wait, have you ever heard of any of the mega pastors doing an Emmaus walk themselves? You know what? I haven't. (laughs) Maybe the world would be better off if they did.
Liturgical art is a beautiful expression of Christ's great love for us. I'm Kelly Schumacher, founder of On You Stay Arts, and I would like to help you learn about liturgical art and the beauty it portrays as you view it through paintings, drawings, sculptures, and altarpieces. I'm available to speak with your group. My website is onusdayarts.com, A-G-N-U-S-D-E-I-Arts.com. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the desire to have, well, huge amounts of wealth and follow a dream destiny thingy and being your own cheerleader is not biblical doctrine at all. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. That's right. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute, well, an amount that you pick. That's right. You get to pick your rank in our crew, and your rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Uh, Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate, $24.95 a month. Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. And everybody who joins our crew moving forward gets a PirateChristian.com bumper sticker as well as one of our die-cut Cairo Pirate Christian flags. Yeah, it's a sticker. And uh, that we send those out as our way of saying thank you for joining our crew. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, moving along, we've got a, a Perry Stone update, and that requires us to do this. I'm a nut, I'm a nut, my life don't ever get in a rut. The head on my shoulders is sore loose, and I ain't got sense, God gave a goose, Lord, I ain't crazy, but I'm a nut. Is it wetter underwater if you're there when it rains? Is it shorter to New York than it is by plane? Between myself and I, 
I wonder who's the dumber. Is it hotter down south than it is in the summer? I'm a nut. I'm a nut. My life don't ever get in a rut. My shoulders is sort of loose And I ain't got sense God gave a goose Lord, I ain't crazy But I'm a nut Yeah, that's right Leroy Pullins and I'm a nut So we're going to be listening to Perry Stone Recent episode of his Manifest television program And this is just, well, really bad He's really going overboard on making sure everybody knows he's a prophet He's hearing directly from the Lord And why does the Lord cause him to to see these things, and along the way, he is twisting God's word, which, of course, begs the question, why would God give prophetic dreams and visions to a guy who was twisting his word? That doesn't make any sense at all. But here's uh, Perry Stone to explain what this episode of his program is about. I'm holding in my hand a leather journal. This is my personal dream and vision journal. Mm-hmm. Not a Bible, but a personal dream and vision journal. Okay. Of visions and dreams that God has showed me over the years. Some of them have happened and some of them have not. Today on- Makes you wonder, I mean, you know, will they be adding this onto the Perry Stone study Bible as additional scripture. You know, this is from God, you know. On Manifest, I'm going to be sharing with you visions of what has been and what will be. Don't go anywhere. Stay tuned for today's very interesting program. Now, notice, he's not going to show us visions or dreams or prophecies of what will be from the scripture. No, from the word of God found in his vision and dream journal. Mm-hmm. Right, we continue. You know, often throughout my lifetime, men and women of God have had what we call spiritual dreams. Some of them gave them instruction, and others were warnings, and some were just words of encouragement that God gave them through the spiritual dream. But a lot of times, the word vision or visions, or the subject of a vision or visions, has not been taught on frequently. And I think that's, I think the reason is probably the following. Everybody just about dreams, but very few people have visions because there is a difference between a dream and a vision. Um, Maybe it has to do with the fact that these things are mentioned in the Scripture, but nowhere in Scripture are we told that we are to expect, you know, post-apostolic era, that we're supposed to be, as a normal part of our Christian walk, receiving dreams and visions, you know, prophetically from God. So today on Manifest, I'm going to talk about visions of things that God has shown me. And we're going to talk about how God can speak to you through what is called a vision. Amos 3, 7. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Now, Amos 3, 7, that, that you may have heard, you know, you know, this is a popular verse used by people who claim to be, you know, um, you know, People who believe in the modern manifestations of the Spirit. See, Amos 3, 7, the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. So there, that means, hey, you know, no, 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 no. This is an example of not paying attention to who is being spoken to. So when we apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis to the book of Amos, chapter 3, we know who God is speaking to. Is God saying in Amos 3, verse 7, that for all generations, from 
the generations from the time of uh, you know of Amos until the return of Christ there will always be prophets and God will never do anything without first revealing the, his secrets to the prophets is that what Amos 3 7 is saying answer nope yeah Amos 3 1 hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you O people of Israel against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Aha. So we now know who is being spoken to in Amos chapter 3. Is it me? Nope. Is it you? No. Is it the United States? No. Is it the New Testament church? No. It's the people of Israel at the time of Amos. This is a prophecy spoken against them, not for them, against them. And here's how the prophecy then goes. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. All right. So, well, thankfully, at that time, you know, they were the only ones on the face of the earth that w- were really uh, in covenant with God. Not so anymore. Nope. No, many families from across many nations and tribes and peoples and languages, well, trust in God and are part of the new covenant today, right? So, well, Amos 3.2 makes it clear, he ain't talking to us, he's talking to Israel back then. So do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has uh, if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does yeah, well, does a snare spring up from the ground when it is when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord does nothing without revealing a secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. So there you go. There's your context. According to the context, who's being spoken to? Oh, the people of Israel at the time of Amos, they're being prophesied against. And when God says the Lord does nothing without revealing a secret to his servants, the prophets, that was something that was true back then under the Mosaic Covenant in the time of Amos. That is not some ongoing thing that exists to this day. So um, strike one for um, Perry Stone. He's taken Amos 3.7 and totally twisted it in order to make himself, of course, look like a prophet. The Hebrew word secret there is the word sod, and it can also mean mysteries. We could say it this way, that God does nothing except he reveals his mysteries to his servants, the prophets. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus talked about the mysteries of the kingdom. And these were parables that concealed within them certain mysteries that had to later be explained. Because, you see, a mystery is something that remains a mystery until it is understood. So there's a reason that God desires to give us visions. First of all, why did God speak to the prophets of the Bible to give them the dreams and visions that he gave them about things concerning the future? There are four reasons. Reasons number one, reason number one is to prove that he is God. In Isaiah chapters 44 through 46, the Lord tells his people that idols can't speak 
but he can. That idols can't reveal the future, but God can. So God reveals the future to prove he's God. Number two, God reveals the future often to make plans of escape before trouble comes. He gives you a way out before the trouble comes in. He makes a way of escape. Reason number three, God speaks through visions or gives us information about the future is to warn lost souls of coming danger. The entire book of Revelation is an end time warning of danger which is coming and the necessity to repent to avoid those things which are coming to pass. Number four, God gives people an opportunity to repent. So one of the main reasons that God would share with you something about the future many times is to warn a sinner to cause them to repent prior to that event taking place. Example, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah or the flood of Noah, trying to get men to turn back to God. Now, the reasons he's giving for prophecy, um, okay, I won't quibble with that, but the reason he's saying these things is in order to make his uh, direct revelation rise to the level of prophecy. Now, Christ gave some advance warnings in his day. In Matthew chapter 23 and Matthew 24, Jesus made some things very clear. In fact, if we look at the four Gospels, Jesus warned the inhabitants of Jerusalem that trouble was coming. He said, not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. The house will be left unto you desolate. Jerusalem will be compassed with armies till the desolation is, comes near to it. Then he not only gave the prophecy, he gave a plan of escape. Go to the mountains. Don't come down to the house. Don't take anything out. Pray that your flight is not in the winter or on the Sabbath day. Then he, then the people, after hearing the prophecy and getting the plan, later had what I call preparation. In fact, if you'll read the book of Acts, uh, Barnabas sold some property and Ananias and Sapphira sold some property. And the reason for it was to help distribute the income to the poorer saints. Why? Because Jesus had already predicted in the 23rd chapter of Matthew that because of shedding innocent blood of the prophets and the saints, Jerusalem would be destroyed in one generation. They're selling the property before the destruction took place. God gave them, or Christ gave them, I should say, 40 years approximately to prepare and sell their property and to get out of the city before the destruction took place. And there was a group of Christians in uh, 66 AD, approximately somewhere in there, that fled to Pella in Jordan and received asylum. And they were not there when the destruction of the temple took place by the Roman 10th Legion in the year 70 AD. But Now, I'm going to point out that is scripture twist number two on the part of Perry Stone. So he says that the reason why, uh, well... Ananias and Sapphira and Barnabas were selling their property in Acts chapter, now this is, gets interesting, 4, is because, well, they were selling it in advance of God's judgment against Jerusalem. Is that true? Is that the reason given in Scripture for Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira selling their their assets? Answer, not at all. So notice, he's twisted Amos 3.7. Now he's twisted the book of Acts. Let me give you the verses. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 is where we'll begin. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the great and great grace was upon them all. 
there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the feet of the apostles. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Mm-hmm. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the, uh, the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh-huh. The, the reason why Barnabas sold his property, according to Acts 4, had nothing to do with liquidating his assets in order to protect his cash in, in well, in advance of Rome overthrowing the temple and Rome destroying Jerusalem. No. The reason he sold his assets was in order to liquidate them so that the cash then can be used to meet the needs of poor Christian brothers and sisters. What Perry Stone just said there as to the reason why, well, they received a prophecy. They knew that the the, the, the temple was going to be destroyed. They didn't know the date, by the way, did they? No, they didn't. They didn't know how long the period of time was going to be, did it? No, no, none of that. So Perry Stone makes it sound like, well, the prophecy was given by Jesus so that Christians can sell their assets and protect their property. Uh huh. Um, and this is what was going on you know, with Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. False. Absolutely false. So that's now two strikes. Two strikes against Perry Stone, who's working very hard to make himself look as if he is a prophet. But it sounds like he's a prophet spelled P-R-O-F-I-T because he's twisting God's word and not teaching what it says. I mean, it makes you wonder. I mean, if if God is speaking to him in dreams and visions, why isn't he coming to him and saying, you need to knock this off? You are twisting my word and you need to repent. And you need to be forgiven for your idolatry and making my word void by twisting it and making it say things that I never said. You are blaspheming my name, which, by the way, is what it means to take God's name in vain. It's to hijack his name and his authority in order to pass off your doctrines as if they are from God. It's to pass off your prophecies as if they are from God. And that is what Perry Stone is doing. And the sheer sign that he's a false prophet is his twisting of God's word. We continue. But I want, I want to talk to you for just a moment about two things that I have seen that I'm not going to be able to go into detail, but I want to give you just enough. And I'm saying this to uh, one guy said it this way years ago. And I love the way he said this. He says, not to scare you, but it's to prepare you. Uh, I saw in one vision two nuclear towers that started spinning. And I remember uh, in this vision watching all these bulls that had horns and it represented the U.S. stock market and how the bulls just started running like crazy. And it was going to create a stock market crash. And I don't think we've gone through that yet. Whatever this is, and, and, and my personal, let me say this, the Lord didn't tell me this, but my personal feeling was that this could be connected to something with Iran 
and an attack on Iran's nuclear facilities, and then it, it affects the Gulf area, which creates all these problems, which has repercussions. Now, that's only one interpretation. It could also be some kind of meltdowns of two nuclear reactors here in the United States, because I felt like it was in the U.S. where this happened. Now, again, there's much more detail to this that I don't have time to go into. But yeah, Suffice it to say, something nuclear is going to happen in the United States. You better start... Stocking up on, you know, prepper supplies. Call up Jim Baker. I'm sure he'll be happy to sell you dog food buckets for, uh, you know, for a handsome price. But the other thing I want to share with you, and I've had a lot of people ask me for a lot of details concerning what I'm about to share with you. And again, this is all in our dream journal. And the reason I keep pointing to this is I want you to keep a dream journal or a vision journal because anytime you have a... Yeah, where in scripture am I told to keep a dream journal? a dream and you think it's from God, never go back to sleep. You won't, you won't remember it in the morning. You think you will, but you won't. You forget. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel 2. You um, what? Okay, there's Bible twist number three. Yeah, that's right. That's Bible twist number three. So he says that King Nebuchadnezzar, because he didn't keep a prayer journal, apparently had forgotten... Uh, the dream that he had in Daniel chapter 2. Well, let's take a look and we'll fact check on that and see if that's correct. Daniel chapter 2. We'll start at verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldean said to the king in Aramaic, O king, may you live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar did not forget what he dreamed about. He didn't tell the people what it is he dreamed in order to ensure that he knew the interpretation was legit. The story continues. So if you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change, therefore tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. Yep, so there we go. Perry Stone now has twisted three texts. Boom, boom, boom. Just right in a row. Which basically says, why should I believe he's hearing from God? Because every time he handles the word of God, he's making it say something that it doesn't say. First, he tried to make it appear as if God is only going to do things by first revealing it to modern-day prophets by you know misquoting out of context Amos 3.7. Put it back in context, that's not what it's teaching. Then he made it sound like the reason why the early Christians sold their properties was in order to protect their assets in advance of God's destruction of Jerusalem. Again, patently false, Acts Four makes that clear. Then he said that, oh, you need to write down your dreams in your own dream vision journal. Otherwise, you'll forget your dreams the way Nebuchadnezzar did in, in uh, Daniel 2. 
But Nebuchadnezzar didn't forget his dream in Daniel 2. Huh. Something is seriously amiss here. Let me back it up just a little bit and we continue. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel 2. You need to write it down absolutely immediately. Immediately write it down, okay? But I, I have had a, a series of experiences. I went on the Peristone Ministries Facebook page. There's only one, you know, Peristone Ministries Facebook page with 325,000 followers. And I shared with them about my tsunami vision. And I said, if you've had a similar experience, share it with us. And I was stunned at thousands of people who came on and began to say, Peristone, I saw this, I saw this, I saw this. It was either, most of them were dreams, but a couple of them were visions. Now, I have seen on the west coast of the United States something happening, and it appears to happen out in the Pacific Ocean where the plates shift in the uh, the Pacific Ocean. You know, how the continents are connected, you know, I'm sorry, the underwater, uh, under the seas, and it shifted so bad, it sent a major tsunami in. It was either that or it was an earthquake that hit from Oregon all the way down to California, and it caused some kind of a wave to hit, and this wave was very, very, very destructive. In fact, in the dream, I told my wife, you've got to get into a mountain area. We were in California in the dream, and I said, you've got to get to a mountain area, and we ended up at some lady's house that I did not know in this dream, and we were watching the news. Now, this, this one in California, I've seen it two to three times. I'd have to go back and get the actual count. I have seen an East Coast tsunami that hits all the way from Charleston all the way up to... All right, so now and it's not just one tsunami, now it's two. Again, why should I believe this is from God? Because you twist God's word. That's the sure sign that you're a false prophet. The Baltimore area, and I've seen that, and I know I'm really risking it coming on TV, and I know we're going to get critics, and I know we're going to get, uh, you know, your fear-mongering. Look, I learned a long time ago, when God showed me this... Okay, the oil rig uh, situation years before it happened in the Gulf. And when God showed me this in 1996, the Trade Center shroud in in, in black with these gray tornadoes coming off of it. And, and seven buildings were totally affected at that time, seven major World Trade Center buildings. I've learned I better speak up when I hear this because God will hold me responsible for it, not at least sharing what he's sharing with me. Actually, God's going to hold you responsible for twisting his word and teaching false doctrine. Are you not familiar with the biblical ta- passages that talk about Bible twisters and those who teach false doctrine and give false prophecies? Yeah, uh-huh. So he sounds, oh, this is what God is giving. This is for sure from God. But the sure thing from God is the written word of God. And every single time he's touched it thus far, he has literally spoken lies about what it says. Hmm. Hmm. What does that tell you about what kind of prophet he really is? Moving along. Yeah, time for a Joel Osteen update. When I'm feeling lonely. Sad as I can be All by myself An uncharted island In an endless sea What makes me happy Fills me up with glee The little bones in my jaw That don't have a flaw My shiny teeth and me My shiny teeth that twinkle Just like the stars in space My shiny teeth that sparkle And beauty to my face My shiny teeth that Just like a Christmas tree You know they walk a mile just to see me smile 
shiny teeth and me. All right, we're going to be heading over to Harpo Studios. That's right. We're going to be listening to, uh, well, Oprah interviewing both Joel and Victoria Osteen. And the questions are interesting, but the uh, answers are even more interesting in the sense that Joel Osteen, I mean, he at this point is so blind, he does not even realize just how far from God's word and what it says he has drifted. Here's... Uh, uh, here's Oprah to ask question number one. Here we go. With the billions of people that you have access to all over the world and all the multi-platforms of media, how do you keep your ego in check? Okay. Now watch how he answers this question with how many I statements he makes. Uh, This is what I would call a humble brag, which means he doesn't have his ego in check. You know, Oprah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think about it much. I don't feel like I'm any different than I was 12 years ago. I think part of it, too, is getting up in the morning, searching my own heart. And, two, especially in this field, there have been other ministries that have been way up, and they've come down really, really quick. And so I think so much of it is just the integrity of your own heart and, you know, being true to who you are. I I don't say this braggingly, but I was good to people before I was a minister. You know, kind and generous. And you are bragging, by the way. And stuff, and I just haven't had. I don't feel like I've changed. You think you're the same person? I feel like I'm the same person. I've grown, but I don't think I'm any less kind or any less loving or treat everybody the same. But I, I, I've grown. I've gotten more confident. Was it the same looking out at four thousand people, seven thousand people, eight thousand people? 16,000 people, 65,000 people. Is it, does it yeah. feel the same? No, I think it, it, it feels differently. You feel, to me, it, you know, it built my confidence to say, okay, God, you put me in these situations and I've, you know, you, you, you keep growing, you keep maturing. And so, I don't know, there's, there's something about the stadiums that we've done. That's just a, that's just a unique feel standing out there, especially when we did Yankee Stadium and, all those people, and, this, and it was a beautiful night, and the moon was up there, and I thought, God, how did we end up here? So how did this happen? I also looked around the room, and I thought, this is, uh, uh, in addition to being you know, so diverse, this is like big business. I mean, to manage. This is like big business. Listen to what she's saying. Uh, a place like even a physical structure of that magnitude. Obviously, when your father started, there it was also a big church. It was five, 6,000, 7,000 people. That's a lot of people. Now, would you say that it is also business? It is. I think you have to look at it like that because you have to have good managers. And if you don't see it as business, then I don't think you're going to take care of what God's given you. Mm-hmm. So is it business? Oh, yeah, you better believe it's business. It's big business. Next question Oprah's going to ask, and I think it's going to Victoria. 70,000 people, as he was describing the Yankee Stadium moment, do you think that he has ascended to that place in America where he has become America's preacher, the world's preacher? Uh, uh, So Joel Osteen is now not only America's preacher, but the world's preacher? Oh, that that doesn't bode well for either America or the world because this man preaches a false gospel. I think he has. Mm-hmm. I really do. I think that the people are hungry for a message of hope. Mm-hmm. I think that they are, they've been beat down long enough. I mean, you can beat your own self up. You don't need anybody to do it for you. Yeah, we're sick and tired of you know Christian pastors preaching God's law and calling people sinners and calling them to repent. 
it's a, it, the world is ready for a message of hope. Forget the fact this isn't what the Bible teaches. But. Um, and I, I just believe that the way he presents it, not in a simple, but just a, just a non-judgmental manner, I think people can receive that from him. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself? Well, you tell me, what do you see as the vision for this ministry? You know, our vision, Oprah, is to throw a wide net of hope all over the world to get people to... Yeah, that's weird because uh, Christ is the only one who has the authority to cast vision. And Jesus, in Luke 24, tells the church to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching all that he has commanded. So isn't it weird that uh, Joel Osteen, of course, he admits now that... uh, This is all big business for him. His vision is to cast a wide net of hope. Isn't that great? It just sounds so mm, like a Hallmark card moment. But the problem is what he's saying is not at all what Christ has called his church, let alone pastors in his church, Christ's church, to be doing. Listen again. You know, our vision, Oprah, is to throw a wide net of hope all over the world to get people to realize that God is good, that he's for them, and he's got a great plan for their life. And when I say wide... Yeah, and not to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, as Jesus said to do in Luke 24, but to let them know that God is good, he's for them, and he has a wonderful plan for their life. That, folks, is a different gospel. That ain't the biblical gospel. That isn't even Christian doctrine. It's especially not just not just the church world, because, you know, that's the world I grew up in. But I want to get outside those walls to everyday people, people that say, hey, I'm not a religious person or all that. But I think there's, you know, when you make God real and practical, then all of a sudden they realize, hey, I don't have to be, quote, religious to have a relationship with God. What do you say to people who say I'm not real? Because I hear this all the time. People say I'm not really religious, but I'm really spiritual. Mm-hmm. What What is your response to that? Well, I, like Joel said, it's really a relationship with God. You know, I have people tell me, well, I'm Catholic or I'm this. But, you know, really, what is your relationship with God? What is what do you believe about God? Where is your spirituality? Uh-huh. So what exactly do you believe about God? Because your doctrine sounds like it's very different than the doctrine revealed in Scripture. So whatever God or Jesus you're having this relationship with, it sounds like somebody dressed as Jesus who isn't. And and we're living in a country now where so many people have been raised or were raised under doctrine and dogma, and they feel so beaten down by the guilt and the punishing, wrathful God that when they hear religious speak or the word spirituality there's an immediate um connection to all of that for 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 which for them has been negative what do you how do you respond to people who they want something more but they don't want to be punished Uh uh-huh notice the question interesting question now here's the weird part oprah is every bit as dogmatic as the people she's making reference to She's just got a different dogma, and that's one of the interesting things. You know, from time to time, I receive criticism that, you know, well, Rosebro's dogmatic. 
And I would just simply point out the person who's saying that is saying so dogmatically. It's not a question of dogma. Everybody has dogma. Everybody has doctrine. The question is, is it true doctrine? Is it biblical doctrine? Is this what Scripture says? Or is your dogma, does it ultimately have its origin in your heart or human traditions or philosophy or even are they demonic doctrines? The question is, is the doctrine and the dogma that you're holding on to? Oprah's just as dogmatic as anybody else, all right? The question is, is your dogma biblical or not? But you know, So notice, she's phrased this question with the assumption that, well, you know, uh, Joel Osteen isn't, he's not into dogma. Oh, yeah, he is. Joel Osteen is every bit as dogmatic as, well, any dogmatician out there. But his dogma isn't biblical. It's false. Yeah, I think just what you said, that's the, that's the era that we're living in, that so much of God has been portrayed as, you know, mad and out to get them and just the, the rules and the, and the regulations. But you know. Yeah, you know that God, <laughs> God has given us the Ten Commandments and literally promises eternal hell. For those who fall short of the glory of God, that's actually biblical. But see, there's another word, and the other word is that Christ has died for our sins. He calls us to repent and to be forgiven. God loves us, demonstrates his love for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. The punishment of God was upon him. He took our place. You see, he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. He suffered the wrath of God for us so that we would not have to. So it's fascinating, I mean, this, this relation, the, you know, the uh, comparison uh, that they're making, that somehow, well, in Joel Osteen's dogma, and oh boy, is he dogmatic, in Joel Osteen's dogma, apparently there is no wrath, there is no Ten Commandments, Makes you wonder if he even thinks there's a thing such as sin. You know, I, I, I know our message is, you know, about the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. When you tell people, hey, you can become a great father, you can overcome that addiction, or you can uh, move past that disappointment. Yeah, but is do they need to become a good father because they're not good fathers and their current parenting is sinful? Is that addiction that they're engaging in, is it sin that they need to repent of and be forgiven for? I mean, it's just simply saying, oh, you know, God can help you be a good dad. Well, that's one thing, as opposed to, hey, listen, listen, dad, what you're doing right there is against God's law. You're sinning the way you're treating your kids, the way you're neglecting your wife, the way you're doing this, that, or the other thing. You need to repent. You need to be forgiven. Christ has bled and died for that sin. And now bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Yeah, huh? You see the difference? He's totally X'd out what real repentance is. In fact, he sits there and says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, which is true. Scripture's clear on that. But the kindness that is being referred to is the cross of Christ and his death on the cross for our sins. To talk about our sins and the need to change or repent apart from the cross is not true repentance, nor does that create true Christian faith. I think that's when people respond, and it's not, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think the, the, the reason some churches don't grow or 
some of them have been stagnant is because, you know, people are already beaten down enough by life. We need people telling us that God is on our side and that he's got a plan for us. Yeah, so apparently we don't need to hear about Jesus bleeding and dying for our sins. We just need to hear that God's on our side. All right, now that'll be part one. I'll save some more of this, and we'll uh, we'll play more of it in an upcoming segment of Fighting for the Faith. But I think you get the gist of it. I mean, Joel Osteen, just in the way he's talking, could not be farther away from the way scriptures talk. And the sad part is, is that he really thinks he's doing God's work when in reality he's doing anything but. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, you know, it's movie preaching season. Got to get a Star Wars movie in. Heading to Harris Creek Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Down, click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com, write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. And, and just ask yourself this question during this sermon review. The biblical teaching, the doctrine that will eventually 
be gotten to in this sermon. Is it possible to actually teach it without the aid of Star Wars? And has Star Wars The Force Awakened somehow really bring, brought this teaching to light? I mean, in a way, we couldn't have ever gotten. Let's go on and do this. Wow, wow, wow. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Harris Creek Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. Brady Herbert presiding. As you already know, the name of the sermon is Star Wars The Force Awakens. And this is going to be a sermon that's going to be talking about the importance of passing along the faith to the next generation. Yeah. Um, which... <laughs> you sitting there go, really? Yeah, so I mean... I don't know how Christianity was able to do this for how many generations now? For nearly 2,000 years. I don't know how many generations are in 2,000 years, but I'm assuming there's more than two or three. And somehow Christianity has been able to have been passed on from one generation to the next without the aid of Star Wars. But now apparently it can't be done. You know, you, you don't preach the Bible by itself, you know. So, I mean, just ask yourself, could we have learned this without Star Wars? Or did by bringing Star Wars into the mix, did we really somehow supercharge this biblical teaching and really drive it home? You know, or did Star Wars end up hijacking the Bible and in a way distracting and leading away from what it is that we're supposed to be doing? I, that's kind of where we're going with this. So let me back off on the music, and without any further ado, here is Brady Herbert and Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Here we go. Hey, if you have a copy of Scripture with you, go ahead and grab it and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. I want to start there um, by talking about um, really the, the whole purpose of the series that we've been in. Uh, and as you're turning there, Romans chapter 1, uh, let me say welcome to those of you who are here for the first time. Uh, my name is Brady Herbert. I'm the lead pastor here. We're glad you're worshiping uh, with us today. And uh, we've been in a series. This is the final week of a series called God in the Movies. And this series is really about seeing where God is at work in the world around us and using that as a bridge to connect people and point people to Jesus. And what? Seeing where God is at work in the world around us. Um, boy, that sounds like Blackaby kind of stuff there. Uh, the job of a pastor is to preach the word. That's his job, according to Scripture. You know, as somebody who needs to have studied, shown himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who can rightly handle the word of truth. You want to know where God is at work? Well, Jesus himself says where two or more are gathered, there he is among us. Um, as far as where God is working in the world, that seems, um, well, quite subjective and fraught to all kinds of maybe um, false alarms. Oh, we thought that was God working, but mm, apparently not. And of course, the question is, God working in the Star Wars movie? I mean, is that really where we're called to look for God working 
is in the Star Wars movies? Okay, we continue. This is exactly what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. Uh, Romans. No, I bet he doesn't. Verse 20, if you don't have a copy of Scripture, you can read it on the screen with me. Here's what Paul says, a very well-known verse. He says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Now, right, understood by what has been made. That's referring to creation and how every... Human being, regardless of whether or not they're a Christian, knows and has evidence that God exists, and this is, and they are without excuse because the fact that God exists is clearly demonstrated in what has been made. That's creation itself. Look at the world around you. This isn't referring to movies. What Paul's talking about here is something particular. It's, it has the name common grace, or it's also called at times general revelation. And what that right general revelation is found in the creation means is that God's goodness, His beauty, His love, His mercy, His grace, His truth—all of that. Uh, what about His anger and His wrath? I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this about nature; it does seem to capriciously, you know, just kill lots of people. You know, I'm just saying. You ever heard of hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis? You know, things like that. Uh, angry bears and, you know, and bumblebee swarms and things like that, you know. Already present in the world around us, it's present in people and present in cultures, even in people and cultures that aren't intending to point towards God. That's why it's called common grace. It's available to everyone. And I think it's important to understand that that God is not just being revealed through nature, through mountains and the ocean and sun. Yeah, the thing is, Romans 1 doesn't mention cultures. You've put that in there. Eyes and sunsets. Uh, he's not just being revealed through nature, because a lot of times I think we, we picture this verse playing out in that way, that, that God's common... Yeah, it's just that the text itself actually is talking about what has been made, that what God has made. It's not talking about human cultures or movies or things like that is basically static and stagnant, but that's not what Paul says. In fact, the verbs that he uses in this, uh, in this passage are present tense verbs. So Paul says that God's invisible qualities are being seen. Right. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the creation is still around. The creation is still speaking presently. And are being understood which means that God's character and goodness and beauty and mercy and love and grace and forgiveness, they are constantly... Don't forget His wrath. ...being revealed to us, continually being revealed in new and fresh ways in the culture around us. And it's our... Yeah, again, Romans 1 is talking about the creation, not the culture around us. ...as Christians to take this area of common grace, the beauty around us, and point that to the particular revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what this series has been about. But this is something that Christians have done from the very beginning of time. That this has been part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That they would take the, the, the truth in culture around them and use that as a bridge to point people to Jesus. I love how Leonard Sweet, one of my favorite authors... Yeah, the issue is that the job of a pastor is to preach the word. Yeah, you're actually, pastor, supposed to assume you're preaching to you know believers and building them up in a proper understanding of Scripture... Instead, you're using Scripture to justify you not actually preaching God's Word, which is weird.
how he says it. He says, early Christians drew upon ideas, phrases, metaphors, and customs of pagan cultures as seeds of the divine word that become enfleshed in Christ and in the church. And there can be God's truth available even in pagan cultures around us. And this is what uh, happened throughout the New Testament, not just with the apostles, but with Jesus himself. So Jesus would, in telling parables, talk about uh, the culture that he was from, using agriculture, agriculture and the way that plants grow, and, and tell parables about life in his culture and context. The apostle... Yeah, the problem is uh, that Jesus tells his parables, according to Jesus, not in order to relate to people... Uh, but in order to actually hide the meaning of what it is that he's saying. Yeah, take a look at Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus begins uh, his, his parable ministry, if you would, preaching and teaching in parables. And, of course, this has got people upset and a little bit confused, and his disciples want to know why he's doing it. And here's what it says in Matthew 13, starting at verse 10. Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given. He will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand." Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is, uh, is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. So, you know, appealing to Jesus's parables as justification for preaching on movies shows that you are completely oblivious to what Scripture teaches and why Jesus himself spoke in parables. It wasn't in order to relate to people, to co- pull on common cultural things and pop culture in order to make his uh, message more relatable, it was to literally shroud and hide his message so that some people would be hearing and never understand what it is that he was saying. So, yeah, we got a big problem here. We'll do the same thing throughout the book of Acts. One story in particular comes to mind in Acts 17, where a very famous story where he uses... Uh, an, an idol, uh, a pagan idol, to point to the truth of God. He also you notice that in Acts 17, Paul wasn't preaching a sermon in a Christian congregation. He was trying to relate to people who were pagans who had no concept of the God of Judaism and who were polytheists. And so he quotes one of their poets in order to help relate and, and then preach the gospel to them. But this was not in the context of a church service where the job of a pastor is to preach the word. So, yeah, I mean, in an evangelistic outside of the church way, if you, you know, if you find a way to illustrate the gospel or connect it to somebody's mind who is, who doesn't understand what it is that you're saying or where you're coming from, sure, quoting a movie or quoting, you know, a screenplay or a book, But that's far different than putting a movie in the driver's seat and making it the center focus of a Christian service and sermon. That is, yeah, I'm sorry, what you're, you know, quoting Acts 17 to justify what you're doing, again, just like what you said about Jesus in the parables, this shows that you do not understand Scripture. 
and you do not understand what's going on. You're looking for ways to justify the unjustifiable. Is the, the truth of a pagan uh, that's containing a pagan Greek poet and some language there to point to the revelation of Jesus. And that is our job as well. That's what Paul's saying from Romans 1 to Romans 10. There is God's goodness and even pagan circumstances and cultures around us. And it's our job to take that and point to the specific or, or the very distinct and particular revelation of Jesus. And that's why this series is so important for us uh, called God in the Movies. And if you think about it, I believe that the, the film that we're going to talk about today and the, the really the, the franchise that this film re- represents is one of the best avenues that we have to point people to the truth of Jesus. In the Yeah, actually, one of the best avenues we have to pointing people to the truth of Jesus is to, well, open up the Bible and point people to the truth of Jesus. God's Word is living and active, not the Star Wars franchise. I have never, and I mean never, had to rely on or supplement the story of Christ and him crucified for our sins with Star Wars. This doesn't make any sense, especially in the fa- due to the fact that you are supposed to be preaching the word. You're speaking to an audience of Christians, and your job is to open up the word of God around us. Now, here's the problem with the film we're going to talk about today. It's a fairly obscure film that was released at Sundance Film Festival only, I think, and a few small select theaters, private theaters. Um, And so my family was lucky enough to see it. I'm going to let my daughter, my two-year-old daughter, June, introduce us to this film. Maybe it will ring a bell. Good. Now you know you know what we do at home. We teach her to be on uh, Darth Vader's team, okay? And uh, uh, we sit around at work and watch her, let her entertain us as well. Um, how does my two-year-old daughter know about Star Wars, the film that we're going to talk about today, the, the reboot of the Star Wars franchise? It's not because we have taken her to see Star Wars. It's because it's everywhere uh, in the world around us. It's uh, on every uh, stinking advertisement uh, out there. It's from CoverGirl makeup. Not that I know that personally, right? But um, also to Campbell's Soup, okay? Everything in between, every cereal on the market um, has something to do with Star Wars. That's why we're all familiar with it. And it's a, a narrative that I think really has shaped our culture as much as any franchise, any story, any narrative uh, that there is. And uh, that's why even if you're not a fan of Star Wars, even if you haven't seen this film, you are aware of the major characters because I think it's it's a, a dominant narrative. And it's a narrative that we can get on board with in many ways as Christ followers. That It contains, as Leonard Sweet says, ideas, metaphors, uh, seeds of the divine that we can use to bridge a gap and point people to Jesus. So just a few of those uh, broadly as we think about the theme of Star Wars. It has this this idea that the whole the whole premise behind it is that in a galaxy far away from here, a long time ago, that there was this battle raging on. Um, that the, the galaxy is entrenched in a battle that we know is true as well. That there is a battle between dark and light. That's something we we instinctively know is true, and that there's this force that is held together, that binds all things together, that is created by all living things. And I love that even with the force, there are some people that are agnostic throughout Star Wars. They're not quite... You do understand that the force is basically a non-personal spiritual entity. This is monism. 
This comes from Buddhism. This is a this is something that is incompatible with the worldview revealed in Scripture. What they believe about the Force, there are some that are even atheistic. Uh, Han Solo, Harrison Ford's character, in some of the older films, was basically atheistic towards the Force until he saw it play out in Luke Skywalker's life, uh, just didn't know if he believed in it. And so all of these themes are obviously uh, important narratives that we can use as bridges to point people to the good news, the particular news of Jesus Christ and the particular revelation of Jesus. Now, there's something in this this reboot of the Star Wars franchise that I want to talk about. Something important for our church and for the church in general, I think, that we need to focus on that kind of gets beyond some of those themes. There are uh, There's something we need to learn from this, I, I think, as Christ followers in, in the reboot uh, and, and the, the new film, The Force Awakens. So let me just ask this first. How many of you have seen the new Star Wars show of hands? For I just want to shame the three people that haven't. Thank you. Okay. Um, you know who you are. That's okay if you haven't. Um, here's uh, really the premise behind this, this reboot of Star Wars and uh, the, the, the passing on of the next generation, really creating this for the new generation of fans. Luke Skywalker, the hero from the first three films, has gone missing. He was training his apprentice, apprentice that happened to be his, his nephew named Kylo Ren, and uh, his nephew rebelled against him, turned to the dark side, and so Luke is in hiding. Read into that, that Really, the hero of the previous generation was passing on his training, his skills to the next generation, and that generation did not buy in in the way that it needed to. And so there's this, this tent. The, the whole generation didn't buy into it the way they needed to because one Jedi student turned to the dark side. You're not even exegeting the movie well here. It's like you have an agenda. You're trying to make the Star Wars movie fit with your 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 biblical connection so that you know nobody can throw tomatoes at you and say that was really awful. So what he's doing is he's he's even wrongly exegeting the Star Wars movie because he's got to somehow baptize this sermon and make it look Christian and biblical within the force awakens that i think is brilliant and it mirrors what's happening in our culture but also happening within the church today and i think what the force awakened uh, uh, accomplished really is brilliant i also have to admit that i am a fanboy of jj abrams i love everything he does and so sue me if you don't like this it's okay um, but um, i love what happened here but there is a lot of tension surrounding this film that continues to play out online. Should they have even done this? I didn't know that I could get any more controversial than Selma. I did with Star Wars all of a sudden, right? And so there's, there's controversy surrounding the film, but that tension also plays out within the film. And that's what I want us to talk about. So here's how it plays out. We're going to see this in the first uh, clip that we talk about. Han Solo and Chewbacca have taken over the Millennium Falcon, their old ship, and they have taken over uh, from Finn and Rey, the two protagonists, the two new young protagonists in this movie. And uh, there's a bit of a, a system malfunction that's happening, and, and they're in big trouble. And so you see this generational handoff already beginning to take place, and you see Han Solo and Rey stepping on each other's toes a bit. You see it get uh, not quite so smooth in the beginning, but you also see Han Solo serving as a mentor, a guide to these young new characters, these, these new heroes that uh, a new generation is going to celebrate. And so this first scene, I think, I love how it comes together. I think it summarizes the tension well. So let's watch this first clip, and then we'll come back and talk about it. I can fix that. 
Coolant's leaking. Try transferring auxiliary power to secondary, secondary tank. tank. I got it. Shoot it, come on! I need help with this giant hairy thing! Stop moving! You hurt Chewie, you're gonna deal with me! Hurt him? He almost killed me six times! Which is fine! This hyperdrive blows are gonna be pieces of us in three different systems. What'd you do? I bypassed the compressor. You did great. Just rest. Good job, kid. Thanks. Welcome. So, fugitives, huh? The First Order wants the map. Finn is with the Resistance. I'm just a scavenger. See what you got. Go ahead. Just a reminder, this is in the context of a sermon being preached to the Baptist church. I don't understand it, but this is a sermon. This map's not complete. It's just a piece. Ever since Luke disappeared, people have been looking for him. Why did he leave? He was training a new generation of Jedi. One boy, an apprentice, turned against him and destroyed it all. Yeah, notice the Star Wars movie said that one Jedi turned against him, destroyed his work, but not that the whole generation rejected, you know, whatever. It's, you know, this is just ridiculous. Felt responsible. He just walked away from everything. Do you know what happened to him? A lot of rumors, stories. People who knew him best. I think he went looking for the first Jedi temple. The Jedi were real. I used to wonder about that myself. Thought it was a bunch of mumbo jumbo. A magical power holding together good and evil, the dark side and the light. Crazy thing is. It's true. The force, the Jedi. All of it. It's all true. All right. Such a great clip setting up kind of the whole point of this movie to start with. Um, you see the blend of the old and the new. Uh, even when Finn rests his arm on the table and the chess pieces come up and, and uh, hits one over the head with the other, that's exactly where they left off in the old film of playing chess. And so um, everything's kind of blending the old and the new. Even uh, BB-8 that you saw, the new droid in this film, is uh, uh, the new R2-D2. He has some interactions with R2-D2 as well that um, just show us that this generational handoff is kind of what is this, this film, this particular one, this first episode, is all about. And so the story continues on, and there's a new dark side. What I find fascinating is that he isn't keying in on the fact that there's a hero story going on here. This is a myth. It's a recurring myth. And, and how that then could 
you know, the, the hero story template and the different points of it, you can actually kind of roll that up and in one sense point it straight at Jesus. That's how you could kind of make a connection. Not that you should be doing that during a sermon, but I'm saying, you know. Force, it's called the First Order, kind of like the evil empire in the old films that has essentially created a new Death Star like the first movie. And uh, really, they have to join forces together to take down the new Death Star that is a much larger and much more complex problem than the ones of the past. And what I love in the next scene that we're going to watch is how uh, all the generations gather around a table and how they interact with one another and how they come together to solve this problem. And so watch the interactions and, and how they really bring the best of themselves to the table to, to solve this problem that is facing all of them uh, in this next clip. So let's watch this and we'll come back and talk about it. The scan data from Snap's reconnaissance flight confirms Finn's report. They've somehow created a hyperlight speed weapon built within the planet itself. A laser cannon. We're not sure how to describe a weapon at this scale. It's another Death Star. I wish that were the case, Major. This was the Death Star. And this is Starkiller Base. So, it's big. How is it possible to power a weapon of that size? It uses the power of the sun. As the weapon is charged, the sun is drained until it disappears. Ma'am? The First Order. They're charging the weapon again now. Our system is the next target. My, without the Republic fleet, we're doomed. Okay, how do we blow it up? There's always a way to do that. Han's right. In order for that amount of power to be contained, that base has to have some kind of thermal oscillator. There is one. Precinct 47. Here. If we can destroy that oscillator, it might destabilize the core and cripple the weapon. Maybe the planet. We'll go in there. We'll hit that oscillator with everything we've got. They have defensive shields that our ships cannot penetrate. We disabled the shields. Can you work there? What do you got? I can do it. I like this guy. I can disable the shields, but I have to be there on the planet. We'll get you there. On how? If I told you, you wouldn't like it. So we disable the shields, we take out the oscillator, and we blow up their big gun. All right, let's go. And just a reminder, this is supposedly a sermon at a church. I can feel the Holy Spirit flowing through me right now. All right, going off to save the galaxy. So um, from here, now I'm going to give a spoiler alert here, and I don't feel bad for you if you intended to see the film and haven't yet. It's been way too long, so that's on you, not on me, okay? So spoiler alert, what happens next? Uh, you can cover your ears and just close your eyes. Don't read my lips. But uh, there is a sacrifice that's made. They do take down the new Death Star, but... In the process, uh, Han Solo is killed by Kylo Ren, who also happens to be Shocker, uh, his son. I know, blows your mind away. If you didn't see it, I'm sorry. I told you to cover your ears. You didn't. Okay, so the point is, um, there is a, a huge sacrifice that's made that, that happens here. And when they return to the base, we see one final scene of kind of both the old and the new coming together to put things together um, in, in a new, fresh way with this generational handoff still kind of at the, the center of the story. And you see that with our R2-D2 and BB-8 coming together. And really what I think J.J. Abrams, the, the director of this, this episode, was trying to accomplish uh, with the reboot of this franchise. So let's watch this last scene from the movie, and then we'll come back and kind of talk about what's going on behind the film as well. Mario. 
Okay, so you see uh, both the old, the old guard and the new guard kind of coming together, and yet this handoff is taking place for this new uh, generation to take over. And, you know, I think it's the dynamics uh, both outside the film and within the film that was most fascinating to me because it mirrors what's going on in our culture. And so what happens after this is at the very end of uh, the movie, Ray, who is the new Jedi, we presume, is going to find Luke Skywalker. She gets on the Millennium Falcon with Chewbacca, takes over Han Solo's job. Um, now the Millennium Falcon turns into the Millennial Falcon, right? Um, a millennial's driving it now. Um, we're all in trouble. <laughs> Come on, that's fine. You can laugh at that. Um, and so um, uh, she uh, goes and finds Luke Skywalker at the very end of this film, hands the lightsaber to him or holds it out to him, and it's kind of a cliffhanger, uh, pun intended, if you've seen the film. Uh, you're on the edge of a cliff here um, where this happens, and, uh, and so that's kind of where the, the film is going to pick back up. Now, a lot of people criticize The Force Awakens and criticize J.J. Abrams because... Uh, they said it was too much like the original films, and particularly the very first Star Wars film. And, and yet, that is exactly what J.J. Abrams was trying to accomplish, I believe, with this, this, this trilogy, or with start, re, restarting this franchise and, and this new trilogy, was a generational handoff in this first episode to really move the story forward. And it's a delicate balance here. And I, I think um, when, when we hear what J.J. Abrams has to say, um, it's fascinating comparing it to what's going on in our culture today. So I have one short, one minute long, behind the scenes uh, clip from J.J. Abrams, the director of this, that kind of explains the tension and the anxiety they had in restarting this all together. So let's watch what he, or listen to what he has to say, and then we'll come back and kind of talk about what it means for us as a church. The fun of celebrating the return of these characters that we know. What it means for us as a church, it doesn't mean anything. Star Wars is not where we go for Christian doctrine. The church has survived 2,000 years without a Star Wars movie. And if Christ tarries, it'll survive a lot longer. Is certainly a part of this movie, but I never felt like we were telling a story about Leia, Luke, or Han necessarily. It felt like a, a story about a generational handoff, that this was really a story about Rey, about Finn, about Poe, about Kylo Ren. And you can't have that handoff without cost. And background. Action. 
You know, no matter how much we fought, I've always hated watching you leave. It needed to serve this purpose of giving our new characters the mantle, and that was a big, scary decision. If you see our son, bring him home. So we had to deal with that, and there was a lot of discussion about it, and J.J. and I went back and forth and talked about a lot of different things, and this is where we came. So that's where I think we need to focus our time because what he says there is is so important for us to understand. There's a generational handoff, handing these new characters the mantle, and that always involves a cost. And I think that's happening right now in our culture. It's happening within the church and within churches all across our country. And I think that's where we need to spend the rest of our time talking about what this means for us. Because Star Wars is basically, essentially, a microcosm of our world. It's a metaphor for us, that something we can all learn for because or learn from because it's something that people feel invested in. They love this, this franchise. And so to reboot it for a new generation has been something that, that has created tension for a lot of people. And, and not unlike Star Wars, our world today, in many ways, there's a battle that's raging on that has gone on from generation to generation. From the beginning of time, we know that based on Scripture. And we have a new generation of leaders coming up in the church that will play a large role facing some really complex problems in the days ahead. Yeah, the problem is in the church, uh, well, leaders like Brady Herbert, notice he says leaders, not pastors. Leaders like Brady Herbert um, have already given in to the dark side, the devil's side, by not preaching God's word and relying on gimmicks and movies in order to carry the heavy water of Scripture. No, he needs to understand God's word is living and active. So, Ironically, you want to go with the metaphor he's giving? Well, there's been a bad pass-off, if you would, and Brady Herbert is one of these leaders who's been seduced by the dark side. And so uh, they're assuming a mantle in many ways. We are assuming a mantle and trying to address some problems that feel larger than the ones that we faced in the past. But there's also that wisdom we need to hear that Han Solo offers up, but it's still just the same old problem. It might be bigger, but it's still a Death Star, and we know how to take that down. It's the same problem from the... We know how to take Death Stars down. Wow, that's that's good to know. I didn't. I don't even have that on my resume. I mean, where'd you figure out how to do that? of time. And so the issues are complex, but they are not necessarily new. And so that's the challenge with the younger generation. What does it mean to, to really lead out against uh, th- this culture and, and lead out against these challenges in our culture? The older generation... Yeah, I'm a little confused. Where, where are the battle lines drawn exactly? Where is the difference between light and darkness? Yeah, it's, it sounds like you're kind of you know, grasping at things here, looking for a coherent, lucid thought. You wouldn't have this problem if you just left Star Wars in the movie theaters or on your DVD player at home and brought the Bible to your church and preached from it without Star Wars. It can be done. I do it every Sunday. I think is struggling at times to figure out what their role is uh, in the days ahead. What does it mean to lead well and to hand this mantle off in a way that is is God-honoring? And I think on top of that, this world does feel, feel a little uh, unfamiliar. Even the cast itself, the, the three main protagonists, are not as homogenous as it was back in the 70s and 80s. 
You have a lot of diversity. The three main characters are a female, a black male, and a, a Latino male. As the three primary characters, a lot of diversity that re- represents our culture and really the coming of age. And it leaves our older generation of leaders going, what, does, what is my role in a world that I understand less than this new gen- generation? And so I think... The way that everyone comes together in Star Wars and the way that everyone works together to solve a greater problem is is really the... So notice how by really having the focus be on Star Wars and now he's trying to tease out something that he can make a biblical connection to, that he's already kind of fishing around and his point really seems muddled we need to focus on. What does it mean to hand off the baton, have this generational handoff take place and do it well over the next 10 to 15 years in a way that moves the church forward? Because I would say this, the next 10 years or so, I believe personally that the next 10 years or so will dramatically shape the future of Christianity for the next 100 years or so. It's not going to go away, but how well we can hand off the baton and how well this goes within the church, I think, will, will show us how effective the church is going to be for the next hundred years or so. And so we can learn from Star Wars, but what I love is we can also learn from Scripture. And there's some parallels here. And we need to look at the generational handoff that happened in the very beginning. The, the apostles handing off the baton to the next generation of leaders once they were getting up there in age. And so there's a story in First Timothy that really helps us understand what I think our older leaders need to... Uh, uh, now understand, uh, Timothy, First Timothy, is a pastoral epistle. Notice he keeps calling them leaders. That tells you he's being influenced by somebody who has, we'll just say, a non-biblical ecclesiology. Embody during this season and what our younger leaders need to embody as well if this is going to go smoothly and be glorifying to God. And so if you have a copy of Scripture with you, go ahead and turn to First Timothy now. I want to spend the rest of our time in First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 1. And just so you know, we are two-thirds of the way through this sermon. So two-thirds of the time has been spent on Star Wars. This is where we're going to begin. Now, as you're turning in your own copy of Scripture, this is a letter that Paul wrote to one of his uh, pupils, one of his really sons in the faith. It's Timothy. That, and Timothy has assumed leadership over a large, prominent, important church in a congregation in the early church, and that is the church at Ephesus. Timothy's facing some pretty big problems and some problems that maybe even Paul didn't deal with. And so... Uh, the problem is Paul is not going to be there with Timothy to help him in the days ahead. And so we have in in 1 Timothy, and we're going to cover this in, in, with pretty broad strokes, we're going to see uh, first some advice. I think that the way that Paul approaches this for our older generation of leaders, what it looks like to lead well in this period of a generational handoff, and then we'll get to... So that's what Timothy is all about, what it means to lead well in a generational handoff? I don't think so some other things that maybe the younger generation can do as well. But let's start with 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read um, verses 12 through 20, and we'll just kind of take a few things uh, from this. So here's what Paul says. He says to Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I don't know if any of us have that as our life verse, but anyway. Uh, yeah, boy, you might want to really drill down on that. I mean, that sounds like it's related to the gospel to me. To save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason... I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He goes on in verse 18 to say, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. So that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to the faith, holding on to faith in a good conscience which some have rejected, and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Darth Vader, I mean to Satan, to be taught not to blaspheme, is what Paul says. Now, I think in chapter 1, we see Paul do a couple things with his mentee, uh, uh, Timothy, and and, uh, really embody a few characteristics that our older generation leaders can learn from. So if you're a note taker, here are three things I I think we can see from our older generation to make this go well. The first one is... Yeah, so apparently this is a sermon about the need for the older generation to hand over the reins to the millennials. They're they're ready to take over now. ...is that you're willing to serve... Uh, even though you, you've uh, already served the majority of your life. Look at verse 12 again. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. What I see here, Paul near, near the end of his life doesn't view his wisdom, his advanced age, and all that he has accumulated along the way as, as something for him to possess himself, to hoard to himself, so that he can retire and so that he can keep his legacy and his name intact. He takes all that and pushes it to the center of the table, leverages this for a new generation of believers. He knows that he can still serve in new and important ways because of what he's learned. So he is still willing. Right. And and to translate this into seeker-driven parlance, oh, he can't be a vision-casting leader. He's got to stop preaching. I mean, he's got gray hair and he's not relevant, but he can still help out. You know, behind the scenes, you know, turn over the reins to a young millennial kind of thing and, and help guide him using wisdom. Although, uh, vision casting leaders are not accountable to anybody, but everyone's accountable to them. Yeah, I'm just translating this into seeker driven speak. To serve. And so, if you have breath in your lungs, here's what I'm telling you. There's still a purpose for you and a role that you have to play in this battle against darkness. And that's the first thing I see. The second thing I think that our older generation of leaders need to embody is that you need to lead with humility. Verse 13, he says, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. He doesn't list off all of his accomplishments. In fact, he does quite the opposite. He lists off all of his failures and his past mistakes. Now, he doesn't, that, he doesn't do that to self-loathe or to uh, try to get sympathy. He does that so that he can point to the grace and mercy of God. Look, if God right. In fact, why don't you point to that yourself? Why don't you really drill down in on the grace and the mercy of God in Christ? How Christ has bled and died for our sins, calls us to repentance and the forgiveness of our sins. Save me and redeem me, then he can redeem anyone, is what Paul is saying. And so listen to this older generation of leaders. This is important. There's no letter jacket heroes here, right? 
There, there are no fishing stories here where they seem to get larger and larger as the years go on. There's no, you should have seen what it was like in the Cold War. You think that this is bad. Think about the last few generations. There's none of that whatsoever. Um, and I think uh, this is important, that there's humility and uh, honesty about our mistakes, not just our failures. That's the access point for a generation to learn from you. Han Solo does this well with Finn, particularly in The Force Awakens. Finally, yeah, if this even if this were a valid exegesis, and you know, hang on, yeah, it smells like it's really tainted with seeker-driven vision-casting ecclesiology, which isn't even biblical. Yeah, I can smell it on it. Can't you smell that? Yeah, that's sulfur, right? Yeah, that's what that smell is. But even if this were a, a valid exegesis, um, I don't need Han Solo, Finn, Ray. Princess Leia, Luke Skywalker, R2-D2, BB-8, doesn't matter who it is. I don't need any of them to actually teach this. I just need the text. A, a role uh, for older generation of leaders to, to really embody uh, during this transitional phase is to provide wise counsel. Look at verse 18. He says, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well. Even though Paul could not be present with Timothy, he knew that his job was to serve as a mentor and give wise counsel. And so he uses that role to speak a blessing over him, to remind Timothy of the ordination, uh, the commissioning that Timothy was commissioned for a purpose. What a gift that had to be. You said it right the first time. It was an ordination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. and yet you changed it to commissioning. You keep changing it to seeker-driven parlance. No longer is he a pastor, he's a leader. It's not really an ordinary, it's a commissioning, right? Okay. For Timothy at this stage in his life. And so what I'm saying is this for our older generation of leaders, is that you cannot view church as simply what you can get out of it at this stage. It's about passing it on to the next generation as well. And if you are 55 or older, I'm just going to say this, and you've been involved in church the majority of your life, then you are probably well-equipped to serve in any way possible. Anything that comes your way, you probably have some type of wisdom and insight to share with the next generation, the generations coming behind you. And here's what I, I, I see all the time, and I, I think it's a shame that some of you do not realize the gift you possess, the wisdom you possess and the gift it could be to others if you would just make yourself available and present to younger people that need wise counsel from you. You think maybe you're not the most spiritually fit or the most equipped to do so. You have no idea what a gift it would be to the next generation if you make yourself available and present uh, to those coming behind you. And so those are just a few ways that I think the older generation of leaders can serve well as uh, this, this transition phase happens. But in chapter 4, I think we see a, a few things that the younger generation needs to embody as well. So flip over to chapter 4, and I think we see what, what Timothy had to embody and what younger generation leaders uh, have to embody as well. Here's what he goes on to say, chapter 4, verses 11 and following. Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look, anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them. Notice, dedicate yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's the job of a 
pastor. So that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So again, three things I think younger generation leaders need to really embody. Characteristics we need to embody if this is going to go well over the next 10 to 15 years. The first one is this, is that we have to really possess a teachable spirit. If you're a younger person. What are you talking about? That's assuming a mantle of leadership. Look at verse. Notice the text he read actually in a very weird way rebukes him for this Star Wars sermon. And Paul says, command and teach these things. That language to me, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty direct. It sounds like a coach coaching a player on his team. And I think Paul knew that Timothy was coachable. He was teachable. He had a teachable spirit. So he could talk to him in this way. And he could advise him in all sorts of areas of his life because he possessed a teachable spirit. So younger people, you have to value the wisdom of those who are older and have gone before you and understand the gift that could be offered to you. The second thing I see is you have to have confidence in your calling and not necessarily your experience and maybe even your wisdom. Look at verse 12. He says, don't let... Uh, anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example uh, for for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Timothy, notice he was ordained by a group of leaders, a group of elders laid hands on him and ordained him to this calling and to this purpose. And so you have to have a supreme confidence, not in your own abilities, not in your education level, not in your age, not in your wisdom, but in the fact that you are called young leaders to a purpose, and that there is a battle going on, and that we have to advance the kingdom of God. Called to a purpose, Timothy was called into the pastoral office. The laying on of hands by other elders were other pastors. And that you're called to to use your gifts for that purpose because there's a calling on your life. Now, I could talk about this for hours. I won't. But young people also notice in this verse that your calling needs to be affirmed, all right? It needs to be affirmed, and not just by your mom, your grandparents, or your boyfriend, okay? I'm just just saying that, 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 let me put it another way in case that doesn't sink in. Just because you think you're a Jedi doesn't make you a Jedi, okay? I'm just going to leave it there, but it needs to be affirmed. But once it is, be confident in that calling and use it for the sake of the kingdom. Now, here's the third one that I think we struggle with the most, and I'll just spend a few minutes here. Young generation, younger generation of leaders, you have to be willing to serve a greater good, something beyond ourselves. Look at verse 16. Paul says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Right, life and doctrine closely. And notice here uh, that Brady Herbert, I mean, he's not really watching his doctrine very closely because he's mixing Christian doctrine with Star Wars stuff. Yeah, that's not a close watch on your doctrine. All Christian doctrine comes exclusively from the Scriptures. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so leadership isn't about just saving or promoting yourself. It's about saving yourself and your hearers. There's a purpose much larger than your own life. And there has to be a willingness to sacrifice personal desires for the greater good, which is not often the case for young people. We'll sacrifice, but not personal desires. Yeah, that's usually code talk in seeker-driven parlance. Uh, you older people who like hymns and you know other stuff, you gotta—that's a personal preference, and you, you gotta sacrifice that for the sake of the younger generation to make Christianity relevant. If you don't, if you sing hymns and you go to a church that sings hymns, that—that's the ultimate sign of selfishness. 
when it gets rough or when we encounter any type of resistance at all, a lot of people want to give up. And they move on and they remove themselves. And Paul says we have to persevere through challenges for the greater good. Now, I think this is part of The Force Awakens and the three young characters, the four younger characters, if you will, and some of the ways that, that the millennial generation gets fleshed out in these, these main protagonists. You have uh, Finn, who is a former stormtrooper and kind of nameless and faceless, doesn't come from a family background at all. And, and when, when he kind of makes this turn in the film, he overcompensates with a little bit of a swagger. He only wants to live for himself. He wants to move to the outer rim and live life for himself until he sees that there's a greater battle going on and there's people around him that care about him. Ray, the, the female that's kind of the new Luke Skywalker in some ways. She is talented. She's gifted. She's strong in the force is what they say. But she also just wants to go back to Jakku, which is a, a graveyard, a wasteland. To go back and wait on parents that she knows deep down are not coming back. And so she would rather just be stuck in the pain of the past rather than get involved in the fight until she kind of gets drawn in herself. Now, I think this is something interesting for you to process with uh, people that care about this, if you're Star Wars junkies and, and care about the way that culture is, is portrayed. But perhaps maybe Poe, uh, who is the pilot, is, is our generational uh, Gen X character in the movie. Uh, he's the one who's kind of knows what he wants. He, he is more kind of black and white, and he's there to help uh, these younger leaders that are still trying to find themselves. And um, if you're Gen X, uh, people in here don't like that. You had your chance with the, the reboot of the trilogy, you know, the, the first three episodes, uh, the prequel, and that didn't go so well, all right? So all I can tell you is Poe is a, a very great character that helps in, in a lot of ways, brings his experience to the table. But my favorite is this. Kylo Ren, who is the new Darth Vader. He is uh, the son of Han Solo and Princess Leia. He is everything that our culture is afraid of about my generation, the millennial generation, when you think about it. So just think about Kylo Ren. He is the worst of our generation, my generation. He's so apparently we're done with the Bible now. I don't know. I mean, now we're doing character studies on the Star Wars characters, none of which actually appear in Scripture. Ten? He's privileged. He gets to tra be trained by Luke Skywalker himself, but he rebels against that. Uh, he's angry. He's emotional. He's got daddy issues, and he's just all over the map. He, nobody knows what he's going to do next, which makes him terrifying. And that makes everybody terrified of, of millennials as well. Um, he even yells traitor at Finn, the former stormtrooper, right after he killed his own father. Uh, I think you're the traitor, not Finn, okay? He just killed his own dad. But he projects all of his wrongs onto others and can't see beyond himself. Now, what's also fascinating is that Kylo Ren is basically a latchkey kid. And really, all three millennial kids don't have strong parental influences, if any at all. Kylo Ren, his parents were very famous. They were well-known, but... They weren't really invested in his life, and it allowed him to turn to the dark side. And so this generation is going to have to decide uh, what we do with the battle that's in front of us. And I think the point of all of this is this, is there are a lot of dangers and pitfalls for everyone, older leaders and younger leaders alike, that could really derail this in a big way over the next 10 to 15 years in this transitional phase. And so I think what's important is for us to understand the stakes and what's at hand, the battle that's raging on, and for us to stay focused there. That all of us need to remember there's something larger than ourselves going on. And it's a battle that's taking place. And it's not the battle in Star Wars. This is an eternal one that matters into eternity. 
And so that's why I think Paul ends the way that he does in chapter 6 with Timothy. Here's how he closes his letter. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there necessarily unless you want. Uh, Chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, he says this to Timothy. But you, man of God, flee from all of this, all the unrighteousness, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were ma- when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I love that Paul ends that way because he reminds us that there's a battle going on and we're all called to that same effort uh, as long as we have breath in our lungs. And so let's end this series with that in mind. There is a battle that is raging on and it's our job to advance the kingdom of God and to spread the light of God in every dark corner of our world. And so we're all called to fight the good fight of faith, to take hold of the eternal life that God has given to us for His honor, for His name, and for His kingdom. And let that guide us forward, I think, as both older and younger leaders in in the days to come. Would you pray with me? Nope. Wow, that was a mess. And the reason why it was a mess is because literally three-quarters of the sermon was Star Wars. And yet the text that he read, a pastoral epistle, a portion from a pastoral epistle, talks about dedicate yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's how the Christian faith has advanced and has gone from generation to generation. It is done so through the faithful preaching and proclamation of God's Word, not through mixing God's Word with all kinds of nonsense like Star Wars. We don't need Star Wars to advance the kingdom of God. In fact, Star Wars, in many ways, works against the advancing of the kingdom of God through a false philosophy and an ideology that is incongruent with biblical Christianity. And so by mixing these two together and somehow making it sound like the spirituality of Star Wars is in some way compatible with Christianity, that's to do a disservice and to deceive and mislead the people of the congregation that you're called to serve as a pastor. I think you get the point, but the whole thing was a train wreck from beginning to end. But, uh, hey, you know, this is the day we live in. You know, it would be selfish of you to actually, you know, preach the word and instead of, you know, uh, getting past your... Well, your preferences and and insist on, you know, preaching the word without things like Star Wars. Right. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and by death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>